What is resettlement? Basically, I think it's kind of like winning the lottery. This is Refugee Resettlement 101, hosted by Fafo Institute for Labor and Social Research. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to this first episode of our podcast about the resettlement of refugees. My name is Ayşe Bilhan Avdar, and uh, in this podcast episode, we will dive into the question of what resettlement is, and we will discuss some of its basic features and how it can support refugees that find themselves in dire situations. To explore these questions, I have two guests today for the first episode. And uh, the first guest is uh, Ragna Lilevic, who is a political scientist and a researcher at the Fafo Institute for Labor and Social Research, where she works on topics like migration policy, integration, and the reception of refugees. Ragna, welcome to our studio. Thank you very much, Aisha. I'm very happy to be here. And we are very happy to welcome you. And uh, our second uh, guest is Elsa Maravi, who has worked for 10 years in humanitarian action and protection of refugees, partly in Lebanon. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, now you're doing a PhD. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your field and your works? Uh, yes, hi. Uh, thank you for inviting me to uh, this podcast. Uh, so yes, I'm uh, currently uh, uh, studying at the University of uh, Picardie-Jules Verne uh, in France. Uh, and um, my um, PhD uh, is, uh, is about Syrian migrations and the uh, path of Syrians who fled uh, Syria after 2011 who, and who are now in Lebanon and also in the north of France. That's great. We look forward to hearing more about you. And um, first, uh, we should start with a basic definition uh, to our topic. So, uh, can I ask, what is resettlement in a basic definition? Sure. So, in simple terms, resettlement is uh, one long-term solution that can offer protection to refugees by allowing them to relocate to another country than the one where they sought refuge on their own. So we know that most people will have to flee their homes because of conflict or war. They don't travel very far at the beginning. Uh, that means that most refugees in the world today live in another country in the same region uh, that they originate from. So maybe they just moved across the border to the next country. But those places don't necessarily offer the rights or the protection or the livelihood opportunities that refugees need to live in safety and in dignity. So if they are not able to find safety there uh, and also not able to return home safely because conflicts can last uh, for a long, long time, then moving to a third country that can offer protection might be the best solution. And when this is organized through international operations, rather than the refugees trying to enter those countries on their own, as asylum seekers or with a visa, for example, mm -hmm. then we call that resettlement. Yeah. So thank you for the clarification. And uh, I have uh, the UNHCR Global Trends report right here that I want to talk about a little bit, which says that 108 0.4 million people were forcibly displaced worldwide at the end of uh, 2022. But recent fighting, especially in Sudan, has pushed the global total to an estimated 
110 million as of May 2023. I mean, that's so many. Like, uh, I have some questions in my mind that where will all these people going to go or what is waiting for them in the future? I mean, that's a big issue for the world right now. And I want to hear more about this from a researcher's perspective. So what do you think about that, Ragna? It is truly a huge number. And of course, there's many different ways to try to assist refugees. Uh, but the UNHCR, which is the UN Refugee Agency, they estimate that in 2023 alone, over 2 million of those refugees uh, would need to be resettled uh, as the appropriate response uh, to their situation. Because maybe they live in a dangerous situation where they are now, or they have some specific needs that cannot be addressed in a country where they have sought uh, protection on their own. The problem is that resettlement is not an obligation for states, uh, the same way that offering asylum is a state obligation, according to the Refugee Convention. So when a refugee is uh, coming to another country's borders and asking for protection, that country has an obligation to respond and, and assess uh, that claim and maybe give them asylum. But there is no... Um, duty for countries to resettle. So it's up to the receiving countries uh, if they want to and how they want to resettle refugees. And as a result of that, there is a huge discrepancy between the estimated resettlement needs that we talked about and the actual opportunities for resettlement. Yeah. Um, because only around 18 to 20 countries currently are accepting resettlement and they do so in very limited numbers. So for example... USA and, and Canada and Australia usually take quite a lot of people, but then the rest of the countries on that list take very few, maybe some thousand or some hundred refugees a year. Uh, so in 2022, a little over 50,000 refugees were resettled to a third country with the help of the UNHCR. And that means that resettlement, while it is a form of protection, it is available to a very, very small percentage, much less than 1% actually of the refugee population in the world today. Well, that's that's really few. Like uh, if you see the other numbers I have told about. So we really need to talk more about that resettlement can look like for those refugees. But to understand the need for resettlement, first I want to ask about the conditions in some of the areas that host large numbers of refugees today, such as in Lebanon. So to tell us more about this topic, uh, and especially about the Lebanon, uh, I would like to turn to you, Elsa, and ask about more uh, in this uh, issue. Uh, you worked with uh, the protection of refugees in Lebanon, so I want to ask specific questions about it to you. Uh, it's a first asylum country, so what are the conditions for the Syrian refugees, specifically in Lebanon? What do we need to know uh, to understand why some refugees could uh, need to move to another country? Well, um, as of today, there are around 8,000 uh, 8, Syrians officially registered with the UNHCR. Uh, and also we have to uh, take into account that all the Syrians who arrived after 2015 in the country could not register because of the suspension of the registration. Um, so it means that, uh, I mean, it is estimated that the country hosts around a million and a half Syrians, which represents around 25% of the Lebanese population. 
So even if Lebanon has always hosted Syrians uh, in the country, like as workers uh, in different fields, such as agriculture, construction, or even like industrial or transportation or food sectors, um, like before 2011, their number was estimated around, I mean, between two and five hundred thousand. Um, before their presence was uh, temporary, seasonal, and mainly masculine, uh, even if some women also were, uh, were there involved in the agricultural work. So what happened after 2011 is that hundreds of thousands new Syrians came into the country with their family and states uh, because of their impossibility of going back to Syria. Um, mainly because of the security situation and today uh, because of a dramatic economic situation. So this had a strong impact on the country, fragile economy and political stability. Um, as a result, the Syrians are not really welcome in Lebanon and they face a lot of restrictions uh, regarding to uh, their for example, their freedom of movement, um, obtaining a residency permit is quite challenging. Uh, also, you have a high rate of unemployment in the country, uh, so this restricts their access to work. Um, so even for Lebanese, it's difficult to find a job. And the same sectors that before um, that were um, hiring Syrians uh, still do, but for, for very little salaries. Um, so this does not really enable them to provide uh, for the old family uh, who is now in Lebanon, um, because before they were uh, benefiting from the Syrian state security system, so now they cannot uh, anymore. Also, the access to education for uh, Syrian children is very challenging. Um, I mean, the fact that the school curriculum is different from the Syrian one uh, is uh, a matter, but uh, the fact that Lebanese schools do not easily register uh, Syrians. So basically, access to basic services and rights are not guaranteed. Also recently, uh, the Lebanese armed forces started to uh, return Syrians without residency permit to Syria, and this has created a fear among the Syrian population, and a lot of them want to leave Lebanon. Yeah, it's a hard uh, issue for for all of those people. And uh, here, I think we need to talk about basic requirements to apply for resettlement uh, a little to help uh, people who want to know. Like, we already talk about what resettlement is, but what this looks for to resettle a refugee to a third country. So can I ask this to you, Ragna? Sure. So um, there's some requirements that must be met for a refugee to be resettled and the, the very basic one is that they must have a refugee status so they must have a well-founded fear of persecution some reason why they can't safely return to their home country and also there must be a lack of a durable solution in the country where they are now if they were able to live uh, and integrate in Lebanon for example then they would not qualify for going to a third country because those opportunities would be used for other refugees with more dire needs. And then there's still a lot of refugees that find themselves in this situation. So in addition to those basic requirements, the UNHCR, which mediates uh, most of the resettlement work, they use some categories to prioritize among refugees. They call them submission categories, and I think Elsa could talk uh, more about this. So the idea is that resettlement should be used mostly for refugees that are the most vulnerable or 
the most in need of protection. Of course, the challenge is to uh, have a system that is able to identify who that could be. Yeah, actually, I want to ask so many questions about this right now. Because, like, I am wondering what is actually vulnerability? Like, who is the most vulnerable? How can we just decide that? But, of course, uh, I know that's a big issue to just discuss in a limited time. So, I am uh, hiding this question for <laughs> the next episode. And um, let everyone know that we are going to discuss this in the second one. But for now, I want to uh, ask Alsa about, uh, can you talk a little bit about the role of UNHCR? And um, like when it comes to selecting refugees for resettlement and the tools they use? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, as Ragna said at the beginning, like the resettlement quotas are very low uh, comparing to the need for resettlement and only like 1% of the refugees are resettled to a third country. Um, so because of this, uh, these quotas, basically, uh, UNHCR has to make the choice who is going uh, to be resettled, even though uh, a lot of refugees have this need. So in order to make this choice, UNHCR has uh, something which is called a resettlement handbook and where everything is well explained on how to select refugees will be resettled. And they have like categories. And so the refugees should enter these categories. So UNHCR has to make the choice between those in need for resettlement. And so it has established some complex criteria mm -hmm. uh, that are explained in a book called the Resettlement Handbook. So basically, it's a mixed between criterias. Some take into account the refugee claim uh, based on the 1951 convention and other take into account their vulnerability. So, for example, when the persecution based on religion is proven, this can be a criterion for resettlement. Also, countries of resettlement have criteria. For instance, some European countries refuse single men or uh, other put priority on women and children at risk. Those are categories of the resettlement handbook. So basically, it's like a cuisine between the needs that are real and that are like lots and the selection process and criteria. I see. So do you see any problems with this way of selecting refugees? Well, the main problem is that it's very difficult to prioritize people that are registered on a database with more than a million individuals, like regarding the uh, Lebanon case. Like the criteria of vulnerability is totally arbitrary and depends on whom does the assessment. So there are no common guidelines on how to assess vulnerability. And this leaves a lot of place for the so-called street-level bureaucrats who will decide who is more in need for resettlement based on their own feelings. So even though we have basic criteria or categories um, that um, put, for example, you know, uh, women at risk, for example, single women with children or children at risk, meaning uh, children who work, like underage children work uh, more than 10 hours a day or non unaccompanied minors, for example, even though you have those like basic criteria, the vulnerability criteria that are added to that, it's difficult uh, to, uh, to assess or at least to to assess objectively, let's say. Yeah. Well, thank you for your 
precious knowledge and um, for your uh, comments. And uh, I have another question for you. Could you also tell us a little bit more about the different types of resettlement opportunities that refugees in Lebanon can access, like specifically from your research about uh, different channels for resettlements from Lebanon to France? Yeah, sure. I mean, just uh, as a small background uh, information, uh, in 2003, the UNHCR and the government of Lebanon have signed a memorandum of understanding that states that the UNHCR is responsible to ensure that all recognized refugees are resettled outside Lebanon because Lebanon is not an asylum country. It has not signed the 1951 convention. But as we said, because of the quota imposed by the countries, those recognized refugees cannot basically all be resettled. So it has to pass by the UNHCR uh, to decide who would be resettled or not. So as soon as the UNHCR has determined who is going to be resettled, um, they organize everything. Uh, they make sure that the refugees may do the interview uh, with the embassy so then they can be granted with the refugee status. They get their plane tickets, their visas. And when the refugees arrive, they're uh, taken by the, the whole state and they have like the access to a house uh, and, and they settle in a new home. So this is like the, they say the royal way <laughs> to be resettled. Um, but since the 90s, you have new forms of, so it's not called resettlement because it's not at such resettlement, but we can call them channeled migrations uh, that have emerged from civil society actors. It is also called the sponsorship system, and it's well known in Canada. So it's like when an organization or a company acts as a sponsor for a refugee uh, and his or her family. Um, and this entity basically helps the refugees to, to be able to travel and, and access the refugee status. This system also exists in Europe and uh, criteria, uh, they also have criteria. And those criteria go from uh, vulnerability to employment capability, depending on country and an organization or entity who, who sponsor the, the refugees. There is also another solution for refugees to resettle themselves, let's say, uh, but by their own means. And this is to apply directly before an embassy. So then they can get the refugee status and the visa. Uh, but they have to pay for their flight ticket and also they should generally have a, a private sponsor, an individual who will host them at the beginning or, or who will uh, say that it will take care of, of the first months. Um, this last solution is often open to people who have intellectual resources as it requires to fill a file, often in a foreign language and it, it requires to explicit the refugee claim based on the criteria of the 1951 convention. But it also requires uh, social resources, uh, meaning relationships in the country of asylum with enough resources to be able to sponsor the person. So, so it's not open for everyone. So the UNHCR resettlement scheme, but also uh, other types of China migration are also uh, have restricted criteria that, uh, that do not enable all the persons in need uh, of resettlement to find this asylum uh, situation. I think what Elsa is, is talking about here is really important. So uh, we need to recognize that there can be a lot of challenges involved in accessing resettlement from the refugee uh, perspective. It can actually take a lot of uh, resources to be able to be recognized 
as a candidate for a settlement. Uh, but also, um, uh, like she's talking about, a resettlement, resettlement can be done in a, a number of different ways. And we see that in the world today that the receiving countries have very different systems set up with different types of criteria and different processes. So their political priorities also play a big role in shaping the access to resettlement to refugees. For example, countries could choose to resettle more women than men. They could choose to focus on refugees they think will be able to find work easily. Or they could say that we are going to have this and that type of ethnicity or people from this uh, conflict that we are resettling this year, but not those other refugees. So the availability of resettlement is going to be very different depending on uh, uh, which refugees we talk about. Yeah, so what I understand is uh, resettlement is actually a really wide uh, topic to talk about. So it's changing from country to country and also it has some like rules uh, inside of it. I am not sure if uh, rule is the right word, but um, I think we have so much to talk, but... Uh, for this uh, episode, I want to thank you both for all this precious knowledge. That was a very helpful interview for understanding the topic. And uh, do you want to say something for the last uh, minutes? Thank you for uh, having us on this episode. We are very happy to be able to talk about the, this uh, important topic. My pleasure. And Elsa? Yeah, thank you so much and uh, good luck for the next episodes. And uh, looking forward uh, to hearing the next episode. Thank you for that. And uh, I hope everyone would think like this. Also, I wanted to thank you all to our listeners who came all this way with us. I hope this was an interesting episode for you to listen. And I hope you enjoyed it. And the next episode, uh, we will be discussing the resettlement project from a little bit critical perspective. I mean, we introduced it to you right now and uh, it's time to look at it from a different perspective. So I'll have amazing guests again in the next episode. So stay safe and I hope to see you next week in the second episode of our podcast. Thank you all. See you soon. <laughs>